Hey, how's it going? Did we do it? I think so. We did. Good for us. Hi, it's going. How are you? I'm here. I'm awake. I'm finally over my two-day-long migraine. Yay! It went away about four o'clock this afternoon. Yay! Um, and I am fresh um, back from Walt Disney World where all my dreams came true. All your dreams really did really, come true. Yeah, really. Um, also, I am the new Disney princess. So I, um, I'm all of the princesses. Princess look for Paul. me. Look for me on every float and every parade. Princess Paul. Aww, so cute. <laughs> I would uh, sign up for Princess Paul. I stayed home and worked like a peasant last week. Um, you and also got lots of pictures. I did get lots of pictures. <laughs> and I just found out that starting in January, Hobby Lobby is going to pay their employees $18.50 an hour as minimum wage. And so I'm trying to figure out the best way to quit my job. Um, well, the good news is, Aaron, you don't have a uterus, so they will hire you on the spot. It's true. I don't have a uterus or any of that pesky girl equipment that they don't want to, you know, have to cover for health purposes. Um, now, how do you feel about Palestinian priceless artifacts? You know what? I can look the other way for a <laughs> certain amount of money. <laughs> for that holiday pay. Everybody has a price and it turns out mine is time and a half for holiday pay at $27.73 an hour. <laughs> Just kidding, kind of. Erin, um, <laughs> um, I need to, I have a bone to pick with you right now here at the top. Okay. I read a book by an author that you have recommended to me countless uh -huh. times. Uh -huh. I've never read a thriller in my entire life. Really? I need to read like 40 more. You need to get his other book, Lock Every Door. That uh, one just fucked with my brain. I downloaded it on my Kindle this morning. Oh, I'm so excited. You're going to love it. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Um, I read, you know, and I say all the time, I'm a slow reader. I read Final Girls in a combined three hours. So fun story, which you know, but not everybody else knows. I've never finished Final Girls. I forgot that you hadn't finished it. I remember you telling me that now. Because I started reading it and somebody asked me one day what I was reading and I told them and then they told me the ending and then I killed them. And now there's uh, a book about you. And now there's a book about me. But once I knew the ending, like given where I was in the book, because sometimes, you know, you can know the ending and it doesn't affect the rest of the book too much. Right. This really did and I couldn't finish it. So... Um, I, I would say I was really pissed. I'm still pissed about it, but I lock every pissed. door, I think is his best book. I would be pissed, but I also, and this is me being a literature snob. This is my English teacher coming out. Mm -hmm. I felt like the ending was a little bit deus et machina. Yeah. And so I don't know that it would have ruined the ending for you because that twist was like. Well, what I think it does is some thrillers, I can find out the twist and I still want to read it because I want to know how we get there. Right. This one, I found out the twist and I'm like, okay, now I know exactly how we're going to get there. Right. I don't want to finish it. That's fair. And that's nothing against Riley Sager. He's an amazing author. 
Right. It's just the way that the ending was, and I won't spoil it for anybody on this podcast, but the way that the ending turned out was so it, like the, the, the trip to get there was not very much. And so there was, it was not going to be exciting to get there, even though that's I already true. knew. That's true. That's so, that yeah. I can definitely get on board with. So yeah. that being said, um, I did. Okay. So take that back. I've read a YA thriller before mm-hmm. I got the arc for called um, swipe, white, swipe right for murder. And that mm-hmm. was really good. Yeah. Um, but it's a different type of thriller. This like, there was a lot of technology and kind of mm-hmm. sci-fi involved, but this mm-hmm. Riley Sager was just straight up like, I know what you did last summer yes. kind of vibes. Mm-hmm. And I've got to read a lot more of that. So thank I you love for thrillers. Me. So if you ever need recommendations, I've got you. Duly noted. Mm-hmm. All right. Want to talk about something thrilling for bad reasons? No, because I just want to true? keep talking about books because uh, I did these notes and yeah, tune in for a new book podcast <laughs> called "I'm Not Talking About the I Five Killer." Yeah, featuring Paul and Aaron. <laughs> that's that's our podcast. <laughs> no, um, this week I watched "Hunt for the I Five Killer." Um, wow, what a fucking monster! And I'm really pissed that I did not know a lot about this case before now. Yeah. How is this guy not all over everything like Eron's? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't either. If I had to hear about the fucking Eron's original Night Stalker, whatever the hell his name is, nonstop for several years, why have I never heard of this dude? I don't get it. But anyways, it stars John Corbett. Really? I love me some John Corbett. Me too. He plays Dave Komingek. Um, you will know him from Sex in the City, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, a little known but dearly beloved show to me, Northern Exposure. I know Northern Exposure. I love that show. And he's uh, in Raising Helen, which mm-hmm. I adore. And he's into All the Boys I've Loved Before. I've not seen that, but that's good either, to know. He is, he's in all of them. Um, it also stars Sarah Canning. She plays Beth. Um, the most interesting thing I lifted from her IMDb page is that she has the same birthday as my son interesting not the same year same day um okay but she's from a series of unfortunate events war for the planet of the apes the vampire diaries and she was also the lead in a lifetime Christmas movie last year called the Christmas Yule blog I saw that one yeah okay she went to Santa Fe Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and then finally we have Tig Runyon he plays Randy he is from Versailles, Road to Nowhere, 15 Minutes, and Snakes on a Plane. Okay. Um, this movie has really long opening credits. And finally, we open at a gas station. Someone walks in and robs a very young girl who doesn't seem to need to be working that late at night. But that's none of my business. Um, she says, please don't hurt me. And then we cut to her on a gurney being wheeled out after being shot in the shoulder. So great. Um, she describes her attack to the officer. And then we cut to a, a completely different scene. A couple of saying goodbye to each other on the front porch of a house, talking about work and stuff like you do. The girl gets interrupted by her friend slash coworker who says they have to go. They go to their cleaning job at an office building. When they're going in, one of the girls thinks she hears a noise, but they just shrug it off. Um, They work all day on this building. Like, it is evening and it's dark out when they leave. Um, 
And the same girl goes to take out the trash and hears the noise again. She goes back into the building and her friend hears her from the hallway. Sherry, the girl, is now accompanied by a man holding a gun and telling them to get in the office. He makes them take off their clothes and then shoots them. Um, one of the girls is able to get to a phone and call 911. Okay. The girl who gets to the phone, do they say her name? Her name is Beth. Okay. Because half of the news articles call her Lisa Garcia and half of the news articles call her Beth Wilmot. And so I was like, I don't know who this woman actually is. They call her Beth in the ending when they, when they give like updates on what happens to whom. So I'm guessing that that was her name. Okay. So Um, I'm going to go with Beth Wilmot. But the Wikipedia article, in fact, switches between, like, it says Beth, and then all of a sudden, it just says Lisa out of nowhere. And right. so, because I'd done this research, I knew what happened, but no one else does. <laughs> um, okay, so Aiden from Sex and the City gets on the scene and starts investigating. Um, Sherry, the one girl, is dead. And the other girl, Beth, after taking two bullets to the head is the one that managed to stand up and call 911. Yeah, fucking badass. Yeah. Um, she They take her to the hospital and she survives surgery and Aiden, aka Dave, makes a joke about how she must be hard-headed. And I was like, you know what? Can we not right now, sir? Sex in the City is in enough trouble this week. You don't need to add on. Right? <laughs> oh, you Peloton is suing the fuck out of them. Have you seen the, the response commercial? Uh uh-uh. uh. I'll send it to you. Okay. I don't want to spoil it for anybody that hasn't seen it. Um, he asks Beth to describe her attacker, and then he has to explain to Beth that Sherry is dead. Um, Beth starts freaking out, saying that he's going to come after her. And Dave goes home to his wife and kids, but just to grab a quick nap. Beth is in the hospital, and she doesn't want her boyfriend to find out about her, her being raped, so she doesn't want to tell anyone she knows that she got shot in the head twice. <laughs> How are you going to cover this up for the rest Thank of you. your life? Um, they bring in a sketch artist. Apparently this dude's defining features and he wears a bandaid on his nose. We're going to come back to that. It's fucking stupid. Um, I said, hopefully from being repeatedly punched in the face, but that's not why. No, it's probably because he has a really bad zit and he's embarrassed of it. A week later, Beth is still in the hospital pretending to her boyfriend that Sherry is still alive and everything's fine. And I was like, the fuck are you doing, girl? (laughs) Also, does her boyfriend not have a television or a newspaper? He can't be that far away. Do they not have mutual friends that are like, hey, did you hear about Sherry? And then he's like, calls his girlfriend. She's like, no way, Sherry's right here. And then he puts, what she the puts the fuck? phone down. She stops her feet a little bit. And then she picks the phone back up and she's like, hi, hi this is Sherry. <laughs> like, what is happening? Oh, God. Detective Dave comes to see Beth and asks her to go back to the office building so she could maybe remember more details of what happened. Um, she doesn't want to, but they go anyway. So <laughs> Beth starts going through scenarios in which she could have done something different to change what happened. And I was like, oh, honey, no, you couldn't have. Um, the only thing she remembers is that the man said he saw them through the window when he was driving by. So Dave goes out, stares at the road a while, and then he starts collecting case files from other city and the cities. And then he connects the same dude to eight different cases. And then Dave shows his boss on the map and he's like, boom, serial killer. Great. That's, (laughs) that's the energy I want today. Yeah. 
Over in Shasta, California, a mom and her daughter are leaving their home when they are attacked by the man in the front of their house. He takes them inside, ties them up, and shoots them. Dave gathers all of the law enforcement officers from the other cases he pulled um, together in his office, and they go through the details linking all of the cases together. And they dropped this detail about the Shasta murder. The, the woman's husband worked for the fire department and responded to the call at his own house. Oh my God. Um, Dave calls this man another Ted Bundy because they're in the, the Pacific Northwest. Um, right. He suggests pulling all of their information since the same guy is working an 800 mile radius. That is too big. Until Ted Bundy was on the run, he was not working on Bayboro Radius. No. Um, so they warn the public, this obviously goes well. <laughs> I, can't, I can't imagine how this could go wrong, actually. Beth starts having PTSD nightmares. Her sister's been staying with her but has to leave. Um, they get in a fight because Beth still wants to keep this all like a huge secret. Um, and over at the police station, Dave is complaining because the FBI wants to get involved and not to split hairs, but isn't there jur- this your jurisdiction since he's attacked people over multiple states? No, not anymore. Nope. Uh, we passed that. We played rock, paper, scissors mm. and uh, we lost. So, um, Dave and his partner are walking out of the station and find Beth. Beth and Dave talk and she asks Dave to tell her boyfriend about the attack for her. Um, and he's basically like, no. <laughs> Dave assures Beth that she's still her no matter what happened to her. Um, he goes down to California to go through the crime scene there. They find a footprint that the forensics team missed. Um, the FBI is here now, too. Um, they all decide to start going through security camera footage and parking lots close by the crime scenes since the killer never parks where he hits. This all makes perfect sense to me, Yes. Yeah. So Dave goes to review the first security tape and the officer tells him, quote, well, I thought you were off your rocker when I heard this idea. And I was like, why? What idea? Reviewing that the security tape or that he's not going to hit where he parked his car? To review the security tape since he didn't park. <laughs> I don't understand. I'm so confused. I was like, why would you like sir if you think that's crazy maybe you shouldn't be a police officer i don't know (laughs) that's gracious okay so they find the guy or what they think who they think is the guy the officer recognizes him from the scene um they track him down and go to his trailer he's a runner um dave catches him quickly though this movie isn't done enough for this to be the actual killer so (laughs) we're only 40 minutes in this cannot be the guy um so they ask, or no, he goes to talk to Beth to be like, hey, can you come look at a lineup? And then he's like, oh, wait, the Ike-5 killer struck again, so it's definitely not him. And let's maybe not tell Beth we've caught the killer until we actually catch him, but that's neither here nor there. Um, meanwhile, some dude with a suspicious pair of gloves, I lost my place, some dude with a suspicious pair of gloves drives a Corvette to go visit his brother or friend or something. They talk about what a bummer it was that the Corvette got mixed up in a whole nasty business of the cops suspecting him for shooting his girlfriend in the face. Um, what? 
okay. His friend is like, yeah, that interrogation they put me through to try and get them to give them info on you, like, sucked. Yeah. I was like, what is happening right now? And then the Corvette guy goes, well, I knew I picked the right guy to be my alibi. And I was like, what is happening? Why? Why is this happening? Can somebody come arrest both of these people? Because I think they both did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, he gets back in his Corvette and speeds off. Back at the police station, the killer is escalating. So they decide they're going to start putting up roadblocks. One of the cops, and I assume it's the same cop that questioned the security footage, even though it's probably not. I don't remember. He says, uh, roadblocks are like soups expensive. So like, are we sure like this is the only way we can like catch this dude? He's like, have you, have you tried a big box with a stick and like a <laughs> cheeseburger underneath it? <laughs> So Dave rips him a new asshole. Um, when he gets back to his office, Beth is there. So they start going through all the sketches together. Over in Oregon, Corvette and his friend go to get beers. The waitress starts flirting with Corvette's friends and Corvette gets all jealous and acts super weird about it. And then he goes to flirt with the waitress. Okay. Um, meanwhile, Beth wakes up to someone jiggling her door handle, but it's not the killer. It's just her boyfriend. He brings her flowers, and of course, Beth isn't acting normally because, you know, trauma. And <laughs> so her boyfriend is like, what is happening? And so she just starts to cry, and she says, please still want me after I tell you. Oh, poor thing. Back at the bar, the waitress's mom comes to look for her because she never came home. A janitor just lets her in and then leaves her alone? Oh, that checks out. She goes to the freezer where she finds the waitress, Samantha's body. Um, since they're eight miles from I-5, they don't think it's the I-5 killer. However, I do. <laughs> or else it wouldn't be included in this movie. Yeah. Best boyfriend drives her to the police station and she tells him she needs space. He asks her to come stay with him. And at first she says she will, and then she says she won't. And then she says she will. And then she says she'll call him. So <laughs> very clear Fair. messages from Beth. Um, she goes inside, but Dave's not in his office. Um, and his partner starts like giving him shit for like Beth being there all the time. He's like, I think she has a crush on you. And so Dave's like, I'm just going to bring her over and introduce her to my whole family. Um, they all joke around and have a good time. And then Beth and Dave's wife look at a photo album and talk to each other. Um, and Beth tells her all about how she and Eddie, her boyfriend, talk about getting married, but she doesn't know if he's the one. Um, meanwhile, Corvette and his buddy are hanging out again. Um, his buddy says he wants to ask his girlfriend to marry him. And Corvette's like, I don't think so. Not until I meet her. But his friend is like, uh, no, um, you were acting really crazy and drunk the other night, like when we were flirting with that waitress and you were being super creepy. So they get back in the car and head up I-5. There's a lady getting gas next to Corvette and he goes over to talk to her. He pumps her gas and tells her, quote, this is what boyfriends are for. And then he asks her out and she says, no. He asks her, if he seems like a creep and then asks her to go for a drink. And um, I'm like, yes, you do seem like a creep. Um, so this girl gets in her car and like dries off really quick. And then he puts on his gloves and pulls out of the gas station. We cut to Tacoma, Washington. Some ladies are working on closing a salon and who should bust in but a guy with a white Band-Aid on his nose. 
and they show his face and it's not Corvette. Okay. I thought that's where this was going. Yeah. It's his friend. I was shook. I was like, wait, what? They've never really gotten me in one of these movies. They got me this time. Nice. Um, we cut to the same friend proposing to his girlfriend later. She says yes. And I say, you're in danger. Um, yeah. Back in Tacoma, the detective on Samantha, the waitress's murder, goes into another bar where she used to work. Turns out a guy she used to date, Randy, who is Corvette's friend, who is also a former football player, like uh-huh. professional football player. Yes. His name is Randall Woodfield. Mm-hmm. Um, the manager says that Randy was a jackass and he stole money from them, um, which is just charming. Over wherever Randy and his girlfriend, excuse me, fiance, are making out and talking about how they're, they're talking about meeting each other's parents, you know, like you do when you make out with someone. Right. Yeah. Uh, Randy keeps his shoes on in bed, which tells me everything I need to know about him. Yeah. Pass. Um, he won't have sex with his girlfriend yet because he says this is his chance to start over and do things right in the eyes of God. Great. Back at the police station, Beth explodes at Dave and starts hitting him because he hasn't caught the killer yet. Beth says she's going to move far away from I-5 and Dave's like, that may be a good idea and I promise I'm going to catch the guy. So Randy, the killer, goes to a diner. He really wants to kill the girl behind the counter, but his girlfriend's with him, so you know, bummer. I'm just waiting. Um, Dave is still working on the case. Um, it's late and it's his anniversary. We cut back to the diner. Randy comes back. He attacks the girl and leaves. She is alive when he leaves, though, so that should, that could be good. Um, and he drives to Corvallis, Oregon, and stops at another diner. Two girls are tossing around a bunch of bananas inside. He walks in and his stupid tape on his stupid face and the girl's like oh fuck this is the i5 killer and he she runs he catches her though but he's lost control of the situation um so the other girl runs out of the diner through the back he chases her down and kills both of them dave is now blazing down the highway screaming into his radio about the roadblock randy pulls up to the roadblock and wipes his face off trying to keep his cool he has a gun in his cup holder. And I'm like, God, where's gun control when you need it? Um, Detective Dave starts to look at him funny from across the road, but some other dude makes a huge scene trying to run through the roadblock. So they let Randy go. It turns out the guy that was trying to run through the roadblock was trying to do it because his wife was in labor in the backseat. Okay. <laughs> so like- Okay. They let him go. And so um, Detective Dave starts screaming about where Randy went, but the other cop was like, uh, I, um, I let him, I let him go. Cause like, um, I didn't like, I, you know, we, we went to the other guy and I thought like, maybe he was like the killer and stuff. And so I let the other guy go. Um, Dave goes home and gets into a fight with his wife about how he's spending too much time working on this case. His wife makes a fatal error. <laughs> In their argument. Okay. Um, do you remember in Friends season three 
when Ross and Rachel broke up. We were on a break. Before that. Okay. When they get into a fight about their anniversary and Ross is just being a jackass and he turns around and he asks a question that just breaks Rachel's brain in half. Remind me. Is this about Mark? Yes. <laughs> Dave's wife says, is this about Beth? And I was like, oh, wrong yes. time. Wrong time. Um, and so Dave like breaks down and he's like, yeah, this is about Beth. And it's also about her friend, Sherry. And it's also about this person and this person and this person and this person and this person, and this, person and this person who are all dead. And she was like, yeah. oh yeah, my bad. Yeah, now you're bad. <laughs> um so they have a long conversation about how dave feels like a failure because he can't catch the killer meanwhile the detective in samantha's case goes to talk to our buddy randy randy says he saw samantha that evening when he went to go get dinner but he didn't see her later that evening he just went back to his hotel to call his fiance like a good little boy he even has a picture of his fiance in his wallet to prove it great okay this detective was like, thanks, buddy, but it's pretty weird that you know both this girl and this other girl, Stacy, that also got murdered. And Randy's like, huh, well, it definitely wasn't me. Super weird thing that I just remembered, though. Um, my good friend Corvette also knew both of them. Okay, I'm leaving. Bye. Right, right. Um, Dave and his partner are watching the security footage from the diner. Um, the guy doesn't show his face again, so naturally Dave just starts destroying shit like you do. Of course. Mm-hmm. His boss is like, you need to go home. But before he can leave, he gets a call from the detective in Samantha's case. He has calling to tell him that even though Randy, he doesn't think Randy did Samantha's murder, and I'm not so sure about that, he did notice some adhesive tape that matches what they're looking for on his counter. And so he wanted to pass that information along. The detective also mentions the gold Mustang, and Dave is like, oh my God, from the roadblock. And so they drive down immediately. Um, turns out Randy has been arrested for rape before, but since he's a big, famous white football player, they dropped the charges. Oh, naturally. That they figure out. out pretty quickly that Randy is the I-5 killer, but by the time they were there to arrest him, he's gone. Okay. They get the phone records from his landlord and manage to match him to every single location he was at on the night of the murders. Um... Just then he pulls into the driveway, he gets out of his car and insults Dave on what a bad job he's doing as the head of the task force, and Dave doesn't kill him, so, you know, good job. Right, okay. Um, Dave goes to get a search warrant, and they refuse to give him one. Great. Meanwhile, Randy starts burning evidence in the fireplace. I didn't know that boots could be on fire, but (laughs) um, in a fireplace. Dave calls the woman at the judge's office an idiot for not giving him a warrant. (laughs) Yes. But it turns out he's in violation of his parole. And so they take him in, even though he's not supposed to arrest him. Okay. Dave starts questioning him and Randy starts talking about his girlfriend, Angie, again. Dave makes him look at, look at Beth's picture by slamming him face first on the desk. So, you know, his partner comes in and like drags him out of there. It's like a big show. Right, they finally okay. get his search warrant from the grumpy lady who tells him he damn well better find something. But they find absolutely jack shit nothing. Okay. So they call Beth in Spokane. She says she can't do it and begs Dave not to make her. But Dave insists they're going to have to let Randy go if she doesn't come down. Um, she just hangs up on him. 
so I don't know what's going to happen. Um, he walks out of his office and finds Angie. Um, they let her see Randy, but he's like, oh, I've totally been in jail before, but definitely not for murder. And also, it's definitely not for what the cops said it was for. I, you know, they're liars. It was just a crazy ex-girlfriend. You know how that goes. Um, he calls her good and pure, which after listening to the Josh Duggar trial last week just made me vomit. Yeah. Ooh. Angie brings up the phone bill and he's like, oh, that's not real. The cops just made it up to try to get me to confess. I'll never hurt anybody. He says, I don't know why he says this, but he says, I heard the killer is always wearing tape across his nose because I heard in prison you can't recognize someone that has their nose covered up. Hold on. Hold on, Aaron. <laughs> okay. Listen, who am I talking to? Can you can you tell who I am? No, I have no idea who you are. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> Go go rob a bank right now with there this post-it note. That's a great idea. <laughs> that says "King Douchebag Ron Puckbaggery." Call <laughs> you in the news. <laughs> so he assures Angie that he'll be out by the next night, and they can go to Reno and get married. And she's just like, "Um, I have to go," and she takes off. And as the door closes behind her, Randy's like, "Bitch." And I was like, that changed really quickly. Yeah, no um, joke. So they put Randy in the lineup and Beth arrives. Um, they start the lineup and she sees Randy. She has a flashback to the attack. She tells Dave, quote, you kept your promise. That's him. They then walk Randy through where Beth is standing with Dave talking like after the lineup. And Beth like gets up in his face and is like, to quote my favorite TikTok sound right now, fuck you and your mom and your sister and your job and your broke ass car and that shit you call art. Yes. <laughs> she is pissed. And so Dave tells Randy that they're setting up lineups for the rest of the surviving victims and that they're going to nail him on everything. Beth tells Dave that she feels like she feels better than she has in a long time and she's going to be able to live a happy life now. And she thanks him. Randy sits in prison because he's a piece of shit. Dave calls his kids, tell them that he caught the I-5 killer and he's coming home. Beth leaves the police station with a happy and determined look on her face. Quote, Randall Woodfield was convicted of the murder of Sherry Hall and sentenced to life in prison. In the following years, DNA evidence would confirm him as the killer of Samantha Adams and Stacey Donner. In all, police believe Woodfield killed as many as 14 people across three states and committed over 50 robberies, rapes, and sexual assaults. Beth oh Williams God. has worked hard to rebuild her life and lives with her family in Louisiana. In 2008, Dave Komiak retired after 28 years in law enforcement and moved with his wife, Gail, to North Carolina. Good for them. The end. The end. But again, like, this is so similar to Iran's. I don't know how this guy has not been all over a true crime podcast that I've been listening to. Yeah, no joke. I mean, I've heard him mentioned a couple of times, but I guess because he was caught so much more quickly i don't know but he, like he's just as bad if not worse he's fucking awful all right so there was a really good sports illustrated article that i used there was of course wikipedia and our good friend murderpedia 
Um, I almost said, why Sports Illustrated? And then it hit me. So. Yeah. So sometime around nine o'clock on the evening of January 18th, 1981. I have to readjust my screen. Hold on. Yep, I am the consummate professional. There we go. Okay, sometime around the uh, nine o'clock on the evening of January 18th, 1981, 20-year-old Sherry Hole had been nearing the end of her shift, cleaning an office building in Kaiser, Oregon. She was preparing to leave when she was grabbed by a man who'd snuck into the building at some point. He was handsome, around six feet tall with curly brown hair and dark brown eyes. And he, I mean, he really was like what you think of when you think of like the early Chippendales dancers with yeah. the thick hair and like the thick mustache and the- Oh my like, God, have you watched that documentary hair? on Discovery Plus? No, but um, they so were talking good. about it. I heard about it recently on a podcast. Um, so my good. favorite murder has it. been talking about early Chippendales a lot lately because they were talking about the Chippendale murders. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's maybe they were talking about that documentary. It's so good. Um, but um, he was wearing jeans and a leather jacket. He was athletic and strong, unfortunately, which meant that as he held Sherry in one hand and a gun in the other, she had no way to struggle free. Leading Sherry down a hallway in the office building, the man walked until he saw another woman, 20-year-old Lisa Garcia, but at some sources I said name her Beth Wilmot, and I will switch to Beth since that's what the movie used. Okay. Um, he took both women and told them to get on the floor, then he raped them both and shot them in the back of the head. Sherry would eventually die in that spot in a gruesome crime scene that I'm choosing not to describe to you, um, but it was described in vivid detail in Sports Illustrated. They Um, do a very good job of, I don't, they don't show like how, they show parts of how gruesome it was, but they relay in other ways how gruesome it was within her flashbacks and within her just like her disbelief that this is what happened to her and that right and like her whole thing with like I don't want to have to tell my boyfriend I don't want to tell and then she'll always like whenever she would talk about Sherry she would say I don't know why she fought back I don't know why she didn't just do what he said like the, right. they convey it in different in other ways but. right um, also not victim blaming Sherry it's not her no point. absolutely not um sherry oh let's see blah blah blah. somehow though miraculously beth did not die after she had been shot she played dead until she could be sure her attacker was gone and then she called the police on their way to respond to beth's call officers noted a strong thickly built man who perfectly fit the victim's description standing at an intersection but it was more than a mile from the attack he would have had to be an, he would have been an incredible athlete to get that far in that amount of time. So they thought nothing of it and kept driving. Well, as it turns out. Yeah. Four weeks after her attack, Beth worked with detectives to try to find her attacker. And eventually this murder, murder and attempted murder would be connected to a string of murders with matching MOs, some sexual act followed by a 32 bullet to the back of the head, All of these attributed to one of the most notorious serial killers in U.S. history, a man the media had dubbed the I-5 killer. And then I finished writing that opening and I looked at Sarah and I went, I'm a damn good writer when I try. You know what they should have called him though? Pieceofshit.com. 
Well, that too. Or the NFL killer. Yeah. Because most NFL players are also pieces of shit. Not all of them. Don't come at me, but... <laughs> Um, so Randall Brent Woodfield was born on December 26, 1950, and he was the Boxing Day present nobody wanted. He no, didn't even he was come just with a that gift. That guy that was pissed off that he got the same gift for Christmas and his birthday, and this is what he turned into. Right. Um, he was born in Salem, Oregon, to an upper middle class family, and grew up outside of Newport, Oregon. His mother was a homemaker, and his father was an executive at Pacific Northwest Phone Company. Mm-hmm. Pacific Northwest Bell phone company. I knew I'd left a word out. Their family was well-known and respected in their community. His two older sisters went on to become a doctor and a lawyer respectively. And Randall went on to be known for showing his dick off to anybody he deemed worthy. So, you know, he's probably the favorite child. (laughs) Despite Randall's favorite game of what I like to call who hasn't seen my dick. (laughs) He was popular. Was his dick named Roscoe? <laughs> I hope so. Call he was back. popular among his classmates. He was a football star at Newport High School. Once in high school, Woodfield introduced a group of girls to another rousing round of Who Hasn't Seen My Dick and was arrested for indecent exposure. Good. And because Brock, I mean, Randall, sorry, weird slip up, had such a promising future in sports. Oh, his- God coaches helped his coaches helped him conceal the incident so he didn't have to quit the team and then i wrote right before the playoffs come on officer it was just four inches (laughs) his parents however did take it seriously and sent him to therapy which is where randall learned to say the right things to pretend that he was healed hooray oh he's a sociopath After graduating from high school, Woodfield's criminal record was expunged because he'd been a minor when this happened. Mm. And he attended attended Treasure Valley Community College in Ontario, Oregon, later transferring to Portland State University in Portland in 1970, where he played for the Portland State Vikings as a wide receiver. Okay. At Portland State, he was active in camp... (laughs) You're welcome. You mentioned this person in our Patreon. He was active in the Campus Crusade for Christ. Oh, God. um, Which was a Christian student group originally formed by um, Billy Graham, right? Mm -hmm. That was Billy Graham's Crusade for Christ. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, And he lived in an apartment located on the South Park blocks. Great. Um, Woodfield's football coach recalled in an interview, quote, when he was with me, he was the nicest, most gentlemanly kid I ever knew. He was quiet and polite, hardworking, and real coachable. Why don't women report assault? Right. Um, and his teammates said he was soft-spoken and a loner who didn't have a lot of friends, but he was a real good athlete. Great. Um, now, throughout his you know, just splendid high college experience. He was arrested on several occasions for petty crimes. Shocking. That gradually escalate. So in 1970, he was um, arrested for vandalizing the apartment of his ex-girlfriend. In 1972, for, you guessed it, public indecency. Oh, wow. I'm shocked. Um, in 1973, he was arrested again 
for public indecency. He was really getting good at who hasn't seen my dick. But I mean, no, but he not, he keeps getting caught. <laughs> right. But also nobody taught him that if you don't slow down soon, there's nobody left to play with. Mm-hmm. Everybody's going to have seen it. And he can go for round two. Then Randy, who's going to want to, who's going to want to play with a stretched out rubber band, Randy? Flip <laughs> <laughs> that script. Oh boy. So Woodfield dropped out of college three semesters before graduating um, because he was up for the NFL draft where he was selected by the Green Bay Packers. Now he was in the Wisconsin man. He was in the 17th round. So it's not even like he was high up in the draft. He was like way down there. Um, which I mean he was selected before me in any NFL <laughs> draft. So like to be fair, but um so he tried to establish himself during um, training camp, but he was cut and didn't even make the team's final roster. Um, so he went on to play Sucks with the semi. Do what? That's Yeah. He went on to play um, with the semi-pro team, the Manitowoc Chiefs. I will never say that correctly, I guess. Um, and then in Portland, he was arrested again. Surprise. I'm, I'm shocked. Uh-huh. And then in 19, that was in 1973. And then, um, so in 1974, after a dozen flashing incidents called unwelcome attention to Woodfield, the Packers formally cut him from the NFL because their semi-pro, like he was playing for their semi-pro team. Right. So they just mm-hmm. got rid of him completely. Bye. So he left Wisconsin in 1974 and returned to Portland. Um, I'm sure they were glad to have him back. Right. They're like, wait, 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 we sent him away. <laughs> there is no, there's no return to sender here. No gives these backsies. Wait, no, you can't, you can't come back from Wisconsin. <laughs> and you fucked up with Wisconsin. Won't Stay there. <laughs> um, in early 1975, several women were accosted reported being accosted by a man wielding a knife they were forced to perform oral sex and then he robbed them of their handbags um and so law enforcement at least tried by having female police officers act as decoys but when it took a while to catch him um he was finally arrested on March 3rd, 1975, after being caught with marked money from one of the undercover officers. Dude. Upon interrogation, he confessed, blaming poor sexual impulse control. Which he said was because he took steroids. Listen, I'm sorry that I'm sorry no. that I raped a bunch of women with a knife. It's because I took steroids. Nope. Um, also, did he grow up in my church for <laughs> sexual impulse control? That sounds like something that I was taught. Um, in April of 1975, he pleaded guilty to reduced charges of second degree robbery. Um, so he was sentenced to 10 years in prison and freed on parole in 1979 after, after having served exactly four years. Great. 
So on October 9th, 1980, Cherie Lynn Ayers, an x-ray tech and former classmate of Robert Woodfield's, Randall Woodfield's, I just changed his name because I guess I don't like him. Because <laughs> Randall's my middle name and I like that name a lot, so I don't want him to have it. Yeah, you're like essentially calling yourself a serial killer now. Right, it's weird. Um, sorry. So a former classmate of Woodfield's was raped and murdered in her apartment in downtown Portland. Her body was discovered two days later by her fiance. She'd been bludgeoned and stabbed repeatedly in the neck. Um, she had known Woodfield since second grade and they'd grown up in all the same schools in Newport. I don't know why that makes that worse because there's not a lot that could make that. Why does that make that worse? I mean, they've basically been friends for life. Like, so I grew up in a small town where the people I went to school with from kindergarten, I graduated with, and I'm still in contact with a few of them. There are few people who know you that long in your life. Like that is gross to kill one of them. Not that it's not gross to kill other people, but like, that's, that's such an, yeah, it's such a disregard for for what seems kind of sacred in knowing somebody that yes. long. I don't know. It's yeah. like a sacred thing. Um, That's what I'm saying, like, why is it so much? It's so intimate. It, There's the word I'm it, looking yeah. for. Okay. That makes sense. Um, so during Woodfield's four-year imprisonment, he and um, Cherie had sent letters back and forth. So suspect- That's why you thank her for sending you letters in prison. Right. My guy. So suspecting Randall's involvement, Cherie's family provided his name to the police. He was questioned, but refused to sit for a polygraph test. So homicide detectives found his answers to be generally, quote, evasive and deceptive, but his blood type did not match semen found in the victim's body, so no charges were filed. Okay. So one month later... On... I have to like remind myself they did not have DNA. Right. And I also have to remind myself that polygraphs are shit. So like I shouldn't be mad that he wouldn't sit for it because I wouldn't personally sit for one even if I knew I was innocent. Polygraphs are shit, and I would not sit for one either. <laughs> um, but I'm also mad that he wouldn't. Right. Exactly. <laughs> he's the killer, though. That's the difference. Right. So okay, um, Paul and Aaron's rule books for criminals number 976 if you're guilty you have to take a polygraph if you're not guilty just don't take it right (laughs) also before taking any of our legal advice you should probably consult your own attorney oh yeah and by your own attorney we mean (laughs) an actual real attorney not a real attorney not us (laughs) i did not need to be called into some weird like appeal like they said they heard on your podcast i'm like nope i said contact your own lawyer um so one month later on thanksgiving day november 27th of 1980 Mm -hmm. woodfield arrived at the north portland home of darcy renee fix who was 22 planning to assault her he'd known her since um college she was the ex-girlfriend of one of his close friends so this must be the stacy character probably 
Um, so Douglas Altig was at Fix's home when Woodfield arrived. Both Fix and Altig were bound and shot to death execution style in the home. And Fix's 32 caliber revolver was missing from the scene. Due to his acquaintance with Fix, Woodfield was questioned about the murders, but law enforcement found no concrete evidence pointing to his involvement. So, yes. So in the movie, like all these murders are being committed with a 32, and they don't realize it till late in the movie that at Stacy slash Darcy Darcy's um, murder, he stole a 32 from the scene. Yeah. Which is the same gun he then goes on to commit all the other murders with. Uh-huh. Um, so how I, does this guy killing people he knows and getting away with it? Well, that's the thing is he's that a is suspect. Like the- he's a suspect in all of them. Um, or in almost all of them, they just can't put hard evidence with it. It's just all circumstantial and not enough to arrest him on. So but after, you would think they would have eyes on this guy if they really suspected him. Well, they listen, he's a master of disguise. Sure. Yeah, the tape because on his on nose. De- well, no, hold on. On December 9th, 1980, he put on a fake beard oh. to rob a gas station at gunpoint in Vancouver. And then in Eugene, Oregon, four nights later, he raided an ice cream parlor. And on December 14th, the next day, he robbed a drive-in restaurant in Albany. Um, And in one of these robberies, he wore that Band-Aid or athletic tape across the bridge of his nose, um, which was described as similar to the nasal tapes, like the nasal strips worn by football players. players, Um, On December 21st, he put on that false beard again and accosted a waitress in Seattle trapping her in a restaurant bathroom and forcing her at gunpoint to masturbate him did he ever drive down to texas because he sounds good for the yogurt shop movie i was thinking the same thing um so by january 1981 law enforcement had dubbed the robber the i-5 bandit given his preference for committing crimes along the interstate five corridor um can we so, just take the word bandit and throw it away? Right. It sounds like a video game. Uh-huh. Um, or like you're on the Oregon Trail, which I know this is in Oregon, but that's not what we mean. Or since it's Christmas time, it just reminds me of the wet bandits from Home Alone. Yes. Um, on January 8th, he held up the same gas station in Vancouver that he'd, res- that he'd held up the month before. This time he forced the um, gas station attendant to um, expose herself as he emptied the ga- cash register. So three That's days a terrible criminal. <laughs> three days later, on January 11th, he robbed a market in Eugene, and the next day he shot and wounded a grocery store clerk in Sutherland. On January 14th, a man matching his description and wearing a false beard invaded a home occupied by two sisters aged 8 and 10. Where were their parents? This was the 80s. I know. He forced the girls to undress and then 
see Sam. Four days later brings us to where we opened with the murder of Sherry Hole and the attempted murder of Beth Wilmot. On January 26th and 29th, he traveled to Southern Oregon and committed robberies in Eugene, Medford, and Grants Pass. In the latter location, two females, a clerk, and customer were assaulted by the robber. On February 13th, 1981, the bodies of Donna Eckerd, 37, and her 14-year-old daughter were found in a bed together in their home at Mountain Gate, California. Each had been shot several times in the head. They'd, um, the younger one had also been raped. Yes. The same day in Reading, a female store clerk was kidnapped and raped in a holdup. And then an identical crime was reported in. I never know how to say this when I read it. Is it Wairika? Wairika? Erika? Y-R-E-K-A. Isn't it Wairika? I thought it was Wairika, but then I'm like, maybe it's Erika. On February 4th, with the same man robbing an Ashland, Oregon motel that night. So he's just like, first of all, not that I'm praising you in any way, Robert Woodfield, but do you know how lucky you are that it is not 2021 and the gas prices are not $3 plus a gallon that you were running up and down I-5? No shit. Also, can we just say, like, for better or for worse, CCTV footage sucks everywhere, except in a gas station. Right. Now, they don't keep the footage for more than 24 hours, which is another problem. But right. um, it is good footage, so they would have totally caught your ass. Right. Um, let's see. Five days later in Corvallis, a man matching the description of the I-5 bandit held up a fabric store. Like, leave Hancock alone. Right. Step away from Joanne. Yeah. Those women have done nothing to you. <laughs> oh, he's at Hobby Lobby pissed that they're making so much money. That's- you know what? <laughs> you, can, you can rob Hobby Lobby. Do not shoot any of the people that work there. That's not their fault. But you can rob Hobby Lobby. You go right ahead um lifetime sentence does not support the Hobby Hobby. <laughs> um so um he also there molested a store clerk and her customer before Gross. he left on february 12 1981 robberies committed by a man matching his description occurred in vancouver Olymp- olympia and bellevue washington um Two of these locations included sexual assaults. Um, Upon a visit to Portland, he planned a Valentine's Day party at the city's downtown Marriott Hotel where he invited his friends from college. To a Valentine's Day party? Listen, that's why he needed all this cash. He's been running up and down, holding up. He also took... (laughs) Three skeins of fabric from Joanne with little hearts on them so he could make tablecloths. <laughs> made everyone a personalized pillow. <laughs> Cross stitched. It says I Love heart. Love you, guns. man. No homo. 
That's exactly what they said. <laughs> um, so, Erin, um, this is going to shock you. So, oh, no. uh, are you sitting down? I, well, yeah, you can see me. I'm sitting down. No one came to his fucking party. Oh, man. Because he fucking killed everybody. Like, yeah, if you kill everyone the, you know. But he had all those pillows that said, I love you, man. Hashtag no homo. <laughs> so when nobody came, he um, got in the car and drove to the home of 18-year-old Julie Wrights, no. who he had met while working as a bouncer at the Fawcett, which was a bar in Portland. Okay. He arrived at her home around 2 a.m. on February 15th. About two hours later, he raped and then shot her in the head, killing her. Police determined that she'd had a glass of wine with her attacker and that she'd also prepared, begun to prepare coffee and a package of instant coffee was discovered on the kitchen counter and a kettle of water had been left to completely boil away. Um, which is just an eerie detail to like yeah. leave in the report. Yikes. So by February 28th, the investigation was now focused on Robert Woodfield, but by then the I-5 bandit struck three more times. With a wet bandits. In Eugene on February 18th and 21st, and then in Corvallis on February 25th, detectives in Marion County assembled a call log showing Woodfield had placed calls via calling cards at pay phones near the murder sites around the times they were committed. Yeah. Um, now, um, at what point does he go to Macaulay Culkin's house and get the shit knocked out of him with the paint can? Right. I want to get to that part. Right. I wish. Um, so on March 5th, 1981, he was brought into the Salem Police Department for an interrogation after um, Beth Wilmot positively identified him in a photo lineup. Mm -hmm. His apartment in Springfield was subsequently searched two days later by warrant. And inside, law enforcement discovered a spent 32 shell casing inside a racquetball bag, as well oh, as sure. a roll of tape that matched the tape found on the victims. On March okay. 7th, he was taken into custody after being positively identified by several Oregon robbery victims. On March the way 6th. you said that, it sounded like you said organ robbery. And I was like, when was he stealing people's organs? Listen, God, he got was real, busy. He was, that's how he bought the cross stitch supplies. He didn't <laughs> rob for everything. He legally bought those needles and thread, but that's it. On March 16th, indictments for rape murder, sodomy, attempted kidnapping, armed robbery, and legal possession of firearms were um, issued from various jurisdictions in Washington and Oregon. Great. And I just want to tell this guy, like, they're not Pokemon. You're not supposed to collect them all. He really does sound like ear runs. Yeah. Like a lot. In the summer of 1981, Ra Randall Woodfield was, I almost called him Robert again, was tried in Salem for the murder of Sherry Hole, as well as the charges of sodomy and attempted murder of Beth Wilmot. Beth testified against him in the trial and was the key in the prosecute and was key in the prosecutor's conviction. Right. Um, Chris Van Dyke 
the son of actor Dick Van Dyke was sure. the district attorney at the time who prosecuted the case. Okay, first of all, you never want Dick Van Dyke's kid prosecuting you. Right? Because those animated penguins come in and just that really make a big show. That kid is literally magical. That kid is literally magical. What is wrong with, like, no. I'd be like, oh shit, I'm guilty. I'm uh, Dick Van Dyke celebrated his 97th birthday yesterday. Listen, Dick Van Dyke and Betty White, we gotta keep them safe. Yes. Um, I'm going to cry buckets of tears when both of them pass. Um, Van Dyke characterized Woodfield as, quote, the coldest, most detached, detached defendant I've ever seen. So on June 26th, 1981, after three and a half hours of deliberation, <laughs> it, it took the jury longer to find King Douchebag Von Baggery guilty. It did not, not much. No, um, Woodfield was convicted on all counts and sentenced to life in prison plus 90 years. Good. Bye. See ya. Um, on October, in October, 1981, a second trial was held in Benton County, Oregon, in which Woodfield received sodomy and weapons charges tied to one of the attacks in a restaurant bathroom. Mm -hmm. Um, they, his defense tried to move his um, trial to another county, saying that the publicity he received in that county would make sure he didn't have a fair trial. And it's like, at this point, where would you be able to move it? I mean, it still was the 80s, so we weren't quite on the 24-hour news cycle yet. But you couldn't go anywhere in Oregon. Like, the Idaho no. Killer was infamous in Oregon I mean, and Washington. yeah, if you're going to use the main highway in Oregon to commit your crimes you can't be mad when everyone knows it's you right um, the, <laughs> the judge in the case denied the request along with the request to hypnotize a prosecution witness in an effort to determine if that witness had been influenced by media coverage <laughs> y'all I know that my favorite murder says this all the time but how any of us survived the 80s is <laughs> right I really don't know so Woodfield was con convicted by the jury and had an additional 35 years added to his sentence. Mm. So life plus 90 plus 35 years. Bye. Um, so despite the apparent links to countless other crimes and homicides, he would not be prosecuted for the majority of the crimes he was believed to have committed. Unable to afford multiple trials, the state of Oregon was satisfied with his existing life sentence. He never confessed to any of the murders which have, he has been accused of or linked to. Well, let's not forget, too, that, like, if for whatever reason any of his other convictions were ever overturned, they have evidence on all these other murders. Right. He's not going anywhere. Um, so he's been linked to numerous other murders via DNA and other methods. Criminologists and detectives have provided estimated total numbers of killings ranging from 25 to as many as 44 unsolved homicides. God. And um, Woodfield is also estimated to have committed at least 60 unsolved rapes. And then this is a list of um, Woodfield's confirmed victims. I have it. I don't. I think it'd be in poor taste to read all of his victims. I thought I was going to do a service by naming them, but I think it would be in poor taste now. So um, that list is available, but there were so many and he took such pleasure and that is just disgusting. He is awful and 
Is he still alive or is he dead? I believe he is still alive. Is I looked at that last night and I'm almost positive he is still I alive. I hope your face is rotting off where your stupid nose tape was. And I hope you get the shit beat out of you yeah. every single day. He's still alive and he's only 70. Oh my God. Yeah. Ew. Yeah. Cool. Well, tell me something good. Um, well, Christmas is coming up and I I just tell me something good. (laughs) I just bought my secret Santa's presents to ship out or like, I finally got them in so I can wrap them and ship them out. Am I your secret Santa? No. Okay. Then tell me something good. (laughs) Uh, I'm out of ideas already. (laughs) What else are you reading right now? I started, so I picked up City of Girls twice and put it back down, but I finally picked it up seriously last night. Good. That's great. I'm reading Brene Brown's new book, Atlas of the Heart. Oh, good. They finally delivered it? Finally, yes. Because you were mad. I was. I was like, when I'm this unstable, you should probably not delay my shipment. Um, And then um, I was going to make you tell me something, and now I can't remember. Oh, wow. Um, oh, and I have a big event coming up this oh, weekend. Tell oh, me about the podcast you were on. Oh, yeah. It's finally gone live. Thank you. I did mean mm-hmm. to talk about that at That's the top. That's what I was going to talk about. So I got to guest star on my favorite literary podcast called What Should I Read Next? Mm-hmm. Which is um, hosted by Ann Bogle. Ann Bogle is. Um, she started with just a blog called Modern Mrs. Darcy, and mm-hmm. it's grown into this huge kind of empire. Um, she's written several books now that are all wonderful, um, but this podcast was such a great experience. I had to bring to her my three books that I love and a book that I hated, and then she recommended me books that um, that she thinks that I would love to read. And what was the um, book that you hated? The book that I hated was The Interestings by Meg Wolitzer. Did it have to be like within a certain time or any time? Any time. Because whenever I think of a book that I hated, it's always The Old Man of the Sea. I loved The I will never hate a book as much as I hate that book. Um, so, because she asks like, why did you hate that book? And the thing that I hated about it, because I read the whole book, Meg Wolitzer is such a good author. Mm-hmm. It's like, she's such a brilliant writer, but I wanted someone to come and put all of these because they're like teenagers when the book starts out and it follows sure. them through adulthood. I wanted somebody to come put all these teenagers in timeout for like several years until they learned a lesson and they never did. And that's how I felt about the show, How to Get Away with Murder. Yes. I always felt like everyone in this show needs to go to jail. Yes. Everyone, that, at least for how- a few years, everyone should go to jail. and so I was like it's not like I hated the book for its like construction or its writing Mm -hmm. I just I needed there to be an adult to shake a finger at these kids and put them in line (laughs) yeah see I don't have like a good reason to hate the old man in the sea except it was so boring like I'd rather slip my throat than read it again right um but yeah that is up anywhere you listen to podcasts so if you want to hang out with me and hear um 
me talk for about an hour about not true crime. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun. It's very lighthearted. We got to talk about my soaps for a little bit and just kind of my reading life, um, which is my other favorite thing to talk about. So that is my favorite thing to talk about too. Um, and then next week, are we going to do Christmas? Absolutely. Let's, we're, we're back again with our third annual Christmas tradition now, I guess. Yeah. Um, we'll both watch a Lifetime Christmas movie and talk about it. We will. I got to find one. Yeah, same. <laughs> I've watched a ton of Hallmark Christmas movies this year, though. Me too. Best one is going to be um, Unexpected Christmas. That's what you said. Mm-hmm. That's the best one. Yep. So good. All right. Well, you want to tell the lovely folks where they can find us? Sure. You can find us on Instagram at Lifetime Sentence. You can find us on Twitter at Life Sentence Pod. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Lifetime Sentence. Email us at podcast at lifetimesentence.com. Yep. Yes. Um, and join our Patreon, patreon.com slash Lifetime Sentence. Um, we, I just like gave you all the rundown of the Josh Duggar trial, which you could not watch anywhere because it was a federal trial. So if you want to hear those like ter- terrible details, like definitely come check out our Patreon. There you go. All right. Well, until next time, don't forget to eat your vegetables. Charge your phone. Bye. Bye.